Well, last week I had several quotes from 60s rock songs. This week we've taken it up a notch with a little more sophistication, but it's no less cheery. Ernest Hemingway, the American novelist of the 20th century, he concluded sometime before his suicide in 1961, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. There is no remedy for anything in life. Man's destiny in the universe is like a colony of ants on a burning log. Tolstoy, the Russian, he asked, what is life for? To die? To kill myself? No, I'm afraid of death. To wait for death until it comes? I fear that even more. Then I must live, but for what? I could not escape that circle, Tolstoy said. Or as Shakespeare's Macbeth bemoaned, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Or Richard Dawkins, the Oxford atheist, he more coolly wrote, human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. On the other hand, on a happier note, there is a new class offered at Yale University as of this year. As the New York Times reported in January, the most popular class ever offered at Yale University is now psychology and the good life. Over 1,200 students, nearly one-fourth of Yale's enrollment signed up for this new class, dubbed Happiness 101 by the students. A freshman in the class was quoted, a lot of us are anxious, stressed, unhappy, numb. The fact that a class like this has such large interest speaks to how tired students are of numbing their emotion so that they can focus on their work and the next accomplishment. Now, I don't want to minimize the stress or sadness of the average Yale student. I don't deny that that class may do some students some good. But do any of us really think that psychology in the good life Will usher in an era of utopia on Yale's campus? Will the 1,200 students in that class three years later be too much better off than those who didn't take the class? Well, time will tell, but I'm not holding my breath. Harvard has been offering roughly the same class for the last 12 years. Harvard's, Harvard's version of the class is based on a book by Ben Shahar and it focuses on 11 tips for happiness. Here are just a handful. Ask yourself questions about what makes you happier. Remember, happiness is not an end, but something you work for your whole life. Put more happiness boosters in your life, like a good book or a warm bath. Create routines. Imagine yourself at 110 years old. 
Allow yourself to feel a full range of emotions, but consider happiness the ultimate currency, etc., etc. Well, many of Ben Shahar's tips for, business, for happiness can be found in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. However, in Ecclesiastes, they are not tips for happiness. They were attempts at happiness that proved hollow. They were attempts at happiness which proved the futility and the frustration and the fragility of life. According to Ecclesiastes, our view of this fallen world has to get way worse before it can get better. The bitter pessimism of an earnest Hemingway won't do, but neither will the positive you-can-do-it pep talks at Harvard or Yale. We all admit that we're, we're after the good life. We're chasing after the good life, whatever that is, whatever we imagine that might be. Life is a kind of quest that way. We're trying this, we're trying that. We're wanting this, we're pursuing that. And how should we manage this quest? Should we bother? Do you need to enroll at Yale? Well, we need a more hopeful guide than the cynics, but we need a more honest guide than the pep talkers with their 11 tips. We need Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn to Ecclesiastes if you're not there already? It's toward the middle of the Bible, probably just to the right of most hard copy Bibles, to the right of the middle. Let's let the preacher, as he's called, lead us as he autobiographically retraces his steps in his own meticulous quest for the good life and also show us the hopeful conclusions that he eventually drew. Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 12, and I'll read through to the end of chapter 2. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks 
and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity in a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, as apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity in a striving after wind. Well, our author unpacks his quest for the good life along five different axes before coming to a conclusion at the end. So if you're taking notes on the sermon notes page on the back of the bulletin, you'll notice six points there that'll lead us through this text. The first, the quest is introduced to us. Verse 13, 
I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now we find this kind of thing about the quest, about his project, about his search for the meaning of life all through the book of Ecclesiastes. We find words like he observed or he turned his attention to or he gave himself over to or he considered, he evaluated, he tested or he concluded or he saw. He's looking for the meaning of life. He's looking for purpose, for satisfaction, wondering what holds it all together, what's the key that unlocks it all. He says that this is a God-given task. God has given this to all the children of men. And it's a difficult task. It's unhappy business. Nevertheless, he gave it his all. He didn't go about it willy-nilly. He didn't just focus on one or two possibilities for pleasure and fulfillment. And that leads us to think about who exactly this man might be. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem. We said last week that many do believe that this is Solomon who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. There are others, though, that say probably not, based on the kind of Hebrew that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes, or based on the fact that 1 Kings, which records the end of Solomon's life, doesn't have a, a happy ending. It, it doesn't show repentance like the book of Ecclesiastes seems to show for this preacher where he goes astray but then comes back to his senses. Nevertheless, whether it's Solomon or someone else, it's a Solomon-like figure, maybe even someone writing from a Solomon perspective. But he like Solomon, has riches and honor, achievements, and time on his hands. Whoever this is had the time, the resources, the interest, and the energy to give himself over to this project, this quest of looking for meaning and pleasure and substance and significance. Now, most of us wonder... If we were filthy rich, would we be satisfied? But we won't know because we'll probably not ever be filthy rich. Most of us wonder if we would be fulfilled as a famous person, if we could handle it, if we would like it, but we're never going to be famous. But this man went down several different roads. Think of this quest as like a number of possible streets that one could drive down. Riches and sex and fame and hard work and achievements and entertainment and leisure and ease. This guy checked out basically all the streets and he went to the end of the road, to the cul-de-sac at the end, and came back. In this way, the preacher is unique because he's gone about as far as anyone has ever gone in this search for satisfaction and pleasure and meaning. From another angle, we know that this preacher is not that unique. This is in all of us. God has put within each human being a vacuum which makes us go looking for meaning, for substance, for truth, for satisfaction, and for more of it. We may not have gone down the same roads as this fella, we may not have gone far as he did down some of these roads, but hopefully you've gone a little bit. You've traveled enough on these streets 
to make the same observation that he did. In verse 14, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Vanity. I said last week, vanity here is not how we usually use it in English. When we say someone is vain, we usually mean they're self-focused, particularly focused on their appearance. They're vain. But in Ecclesiastes, vanity literally means mist or vapor. It's something that lacks substance and it doesn't last. It's, it's when you on a mirror and something appears there for just a little bit. But it's insignificant and it goes away quickly. And all of life is like that according to this preacher. Everything under the sun, everything under the curse is striving or grasping after the wind. There's futility in it. There's frustration about it. There's a kind of senselessness and mysteriousness to it. That's his conclusion after driving down several roads. Let's let him lead us down some of these roads. Secondly, there's the quest for learning. For learning. We know of Solomon's unique God-given wisdom described in 1 Kings 4. Well, whether the preacher or Solomon, this man here, he's got that kind of God-given wisdom and he even builds upon it and adds to it. He learns. He wants to know more. He applied his heart to understand knowledge and even madness and folly. He was a learner. And he wondered whether learning would be the key that unlocks meaning in life and give satisfaction and some of you know that very well. Albuquerque is a fairly educated city. Many of you, you have a master's degree or a PhD. You work at Sandia Lab. We have several MDs in our church. If that's you, you've put in the time. You went through those years of hard work. And you probably wondered somewhere in the middle of it all. Or perhaps even at the beginning of it. At the end, will I be satisfied at the end of this path, will I finally find what I've been looking for? You thought maybe that degree or your learning or your ongoing learning would satisfy. And of course, there's nothing wrong with learning here. Let's not, let's not overreact. Let's not overinterpret what's here in Ecclesiastes and apply it in too much wrong directions. Nothing wrong with learning, nothing wrong with education, even the best of it. But if we're trusting in it, if we're hoping to fill a void, if we're thinking that that is our identity, well then, listen to Solomon, or the preacher. Verse 17, I per perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. Being the smartest guy in the room or just occasionally being noticed for saying something kind of smart. Talking about the defense of your master's thesis, like Uncle Rico talks about high school football. Well, hopefully you've come to realize that this is just fleeting pleasure. This is like gumdrop stuff. A gumdrop, sure, it's sweet, it feels good when it goes in, you can't live on this stuff. There's no substance to it. Students, high school students who really excel, 
your 4.333 GPA, that is not who you are. A 3.8 wouldn't be who you are if that's what you had, or a 3.3. If you're trusting in your all A's, you will eventually come to realize that that brings about as much satisfaction as the Krispy Kreme donuts that are free for every A you get. Did you know about that? You do now. (laughs) Then there are others here, whether adults or kids, and you're not known for your smarts. And that's just the way to put it. I wouldn't point it out to you. You wouldn't bring it up probably, but you might be tempted to wonder whether you'd be satisfied if you only finished college, whether you'd be happy if mom and dad only had helped you to be a reader, if you just had another 10 IQ points you could keep up in some conversations in your community group. I don't want to discourage anyone's learning or growth, even lifelong learning, not in the least, but if you're tempted to envy those who have just a little bit more, if you're tempted to think, if only, if only mom and dad had taught me to read sooner, if only we had had the funds for me to go to college, if only I would have had the money to be able to finish college. Well, listen to the preacher. It's all striving after the wind. In fact, verse 18, in much wisdom is much vexation. Hear the wisdom that we hear in Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's the heart of wisdom. Thirdly, there's the quest for pleasures here. The first 11 verses of chapter 2 show us this man giving himself over to various pleasures, telling himself, enjoy yourself. He even tested various pleasures, like laughter in verse 2. Laughter. There are many places in the Bible where it speaks of laughter as a gift from God. We all like to laugh. Like Bert on Mary Poppins, we love to laugh. Ha, 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 ha. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, God made us to hear something funny and the ends of our lips curl up and our mouth opens and we irrepressibly let some noise out. Some people's noise is more pleasant than others, but... This is just a funny thing that God made us to do. And when we do it with others, it's even better. It's contagious. But don't think about the wonder and the joy of laughter right now. Think of the futility of it. Think of the silliness of it. Think of the senselessness of it. Think of the obsession that we have in our culture with laughter. This has to be one of the greatest weaknesses of my generation here in America We love to say witty things, if not sarcastic and rude things to each other. We we like to quote funny lines from movies and show each other the latest funny YouTube clip. We're really good at all that. And what's the point? What has it gotten us? All this laughter, laughter. And are we really much better or worse? Blaise Pascal would have simply called that diversion. He wrote in his Pensees, 
The only thing which consoles us for our miseries is diversion, or think laughter there. And yet this is the greatest of our miseries, for it is this, laughter, or diversion, which principally hinders us from reflecting upon ourselves, and which makes us insensibly ruin ourselves. Without this, laughter, diversion, we should be in a state of weariness, and this weariness would spur us to seek a more solid means of escaping from it. But, but by diversion, we amuse ourselves, and it leads us unconsciously to death. The same could be said for wine, verse 3. He sought to cheer his body with wine. This is not the moderate use of wine. This is not Psalm 104 where wine is enjoyed and it warms the heart and there's thankfulness to God. This is drunkenness, sinful drunkenness. He's trying to lay hold of folly, verse 3. He even tested it, perhaps looking for a way to get a good drunk in without having a hangover the next day. By the way, the same is true for any chemical escape. It's nothing. At best, it's nothing. Often it's embarrassing and enslaving and painful. But whether you're talking about alcohol or pot or opioids, if they're used to escape emotional hurt, we're missing it. He also sought pleasure in projects and achievements. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of trees. Now notice how this almost is reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Isn't it? Some of the same language that you find in Genesis 1 and 2. Planted, watered, gardens, trees, fruitful trees. But notice what's missing here in Ecclesiastes. God is. God is missing. For this man, it's all for him, and he built it all. It's for myself. I made myself these things. I did it. I made it. I built. Never mind that the king surely didn't lift a finger, but he did it without God. That leads to his possessions. First on the list is slaves, verse 7. He had lots and lots of slaves, even generations of slaves. He had great possessions, herds and flocks, more than any king. He had silver and gold. He had the treasures of kings, verse 8. He had entertainment. Verse 8, I got singers. I love that line. I got singers, male and female singers. We take for granted how accessible good music is. Most of us pay a subscription to get basically all music at our fingertips right there. And it's just crazy. For 15 bucks a month, any song, you just hit play. That's how accessible it is for us. It used to be that you have to buy the music, then you put it on an MP3 player, or you would burn it on this round disc called a CD. Before that, you couldn't really burn these CDs anywhere, so you'd buy them from the store, the store, a building. It has a door in the front, kids. <laughs> CD, it would come in a package. You didn't get to pick the songs. They picked the songs for you. You bought an album. 
Before that, we had cassettes. And you could put them in a Walkman and walk around. It was crazy. What? I guess before that, there was this mobile way of having music. I don't know what the politically correct term for it is. I grew up in Detroit where we called them ghetto blasters. Those things that people would put on their shoulder and turn up and they had the big speakers. And well, that was amazing because it was mobile. Before that, music wasn't mobile. It was wherever you plugged in a record player. But even recordings are fairly new. And this is the day before recordings. And so you want music, it's all live music. And the only people that have live music at their disposal are kings. This king had entertainment at a level that no one in his day could outdo. The same goes for women. Verse 8, he says, he had many concubines. Concubines are women on standby for one purpose, the king's physical pleasure. 1 Kings 11 tells us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he had fame. Verse 9, I became great. Or verse 10, I kept my heart from no pleasure. Just summary statement. So take it all in if you can. This man had the pleasure of laughter and folly, wine and women, sex, unparalleled possessions, accomplishments galore, entertainment, ease, fame, and honor. And what did he think? Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended. And behold, all was vanity, emptiness, fleetingness. It was striving after the wind, futile. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Amazing. This man said, the sum total isn't a gain. It doesn't have a gain. The world looks at this man and says, he's got it all. This man had it all. He said, no, no gain. Fourth, there's the quest in light of death. Verses 12 to 17 ponder life and its accomplishments and pleasures and possessions in light of death. He does concede in verse 13 that there is more gain in wisdom than folly. It's better to be wise than to be foolish. But verse 14, I perceive that the same event happens to both the fool and the wise. What's the same event? Death. Death happens to both the fool and the wise. And for that matter, there's no enduring remembrance, verse 16. All their days will be forgotten. We saw this last week in earlier verses. In chapter 1, verse 11, the same kind of thing was talked about. For 99.999% of the world, they die, and within a few generations, they are forgotten. And with 100% of the world so far, they die. No matter how much or little they had, no matter how much they did, no matter how well they were thought of. Person after person, generation after generation, they just keep dying and going into the dirt. It's the circle of life. Remember that song? From the day we arrive on the planet and blinking step into the sun, 
There's more to see that can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be done. I'm trying not to sing it. (laughs) There's far too much to take in here, more to find than can ever be found, but the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round. It's the circle of life. It's all so happy and pleasant. The tune is almost triumphant. It seems like the, the, the prelude to a circus. But then Mufasa dies in the movie. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and then the circle of life isn't so cute And happy, is it? The circle of life song in the movie happens early in the movie. And if it happened just after Mufasa dies, it has a totally different meaning. They better write that one in the minor key because this is a funeral dirge. The circle of life is a pleasant thought when you imagine the replenishing of the Serengeti. But when the circle of life means burying dad... The circle of life sucks. Is that too strong a language? I I can just use the preacher's words if you prefer. Verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Remember, as we said last week, Ecclesiastes wants to show us quite painfully the reality the pervasiveness, the penetration of the curse, and that this is unstoppable in our own power. Ecclesiastes insists that our view of the world has to get worse before it can get better. With this curse, you can't cover it up with perfume. You can't invent something to fix it. You can't try to ignore it for long with your pleasures because they don't fully satisfy And the curse will reveal itself soon again. Fifth, there's the quest through work. Through work. The preacher, verse 18, hated all his toil. Why? Well, in this case, because when you die, your possessions will get passed on to someone else and you don't know what they'll do with your possessions. He is vexed and perplexed about this issue for about six verses. Now, most of us would think that that's a nice problem to have. What is going to happen to all my possessions when I die? Most of us would smile and think, that's not really a problem. Well, the preacher He wasn't just any old person. He's a king, and his possessions are plenty. Most of us are hoping that when we die, we're not in debt, and there's not too much junk in the the garage for the kids to clean out. But this guy was a wealthy king, and he had a fairly unique concern. What will become of all this, this wealth and possession and power? What if the next king is dumb and ruins everything? That's a real concern for him. But how does it apply to us? Well, it applies to more than just inheritances, whether big or small. You see, the frustration and the futility of the curse put on our work is felt by all of us. The thorns and thistles of Genesis 3 don't just apply to farmers, but all workers, 
And sometimes we work hard, and someone who didn't work hard gets the credit. Sometimes the wrong guy gets the, gets the promotion. Sometimes a good guy just got unjustly terminated. Sometimes you're doing work on your computer for a couple of hours and something happens and it shuts off and you've lost all that work. Sometimes your steady work doesn't seem to be making progress. You don't seem to put a dent in it or it seems unending. Some people make their work look easy. There are those people who can spin 50 plates and smile while they do it. And they make it look all so easy. And your work maybe feels like you are trying to push a boulder uphill and your feet are slipping and slipping and slipping. Sometimes work feels like toil. Sometimes there's a striving of the heart because work is hard, verse 22. Sometimes it feels right to say through tears in our eyes with verse 23, all my days are full of sorrow and this work is vexation. And even at night, Lord, there's no rest in my heart. This is vanity. Some of us are trusting in our work. This, too, is vanity. Some of us love our work too much. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. You will never be satisfied until you come to see that your job isn't God. It's not the Lord. It doesn't satisfy. It can't do what God can do. But it is from God. So sixth, the conclusion. Simple, God-given joys. After all this, the preacher has the gall to say there are simple, God-given joys in this fallen world. Ironically, one of which is work. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? And you might wonder, well, how is this not vanity and futility and frustration and chasing after the wind. Don't food and drink and enjoyment fall under the pleasures that he already said were empty. What's changed? Well, for one, God is now in the picture by verse 24. God was mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 12, regarding that unhappy business that he gives to humanity to search out the meaning of life. And by the way, if that unhappy business doesn't bring you to the end of yourself and doesn't cause you to look up to your maker, then that is still your unhappy business. Verse 24 and 25 and 26 don't apply to you. Well, verse 26 does. To the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. That's it. You just keep doing your unhappy business. Unless your unhappy business has, has brought you to the end of yourself 
and has caused you to look up to God in all your plotting, in all these fleeting pleasures of life, in all your pondering about your life? Have you come to the end of yourself and have you looked up to your maker? You see, if you will abandon trying to squeeze out of life whatever you can for you, and if you forego trying to do life without him, as the preacher did for 23 long verses in chapter 2. Well, if you can forego trying to do life without him, he can free you to get him right, to be right with him, and to see other things aright. You can start to see everything actually now from him, as a gift from him. And hence, you will know something of the good life. You don't deserve the good life. I don't either. You can't earn the good life. We can't even realize what the good life is apart from God intervening kindly. You see, he says this is from the hand of God. What is? Well, the realization that there's nothing better than eating and drinking and working and finding enjoyment. This is a gift from God. God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. It was kind of God to put you in a broken world where you feel its brokenness so that you would know it's broken. Do you know it was kind of God to let every one of your misplaced hopes and aspirations for ultimate satisfaction to fall flat and leave you feeling empty? Do you know that it's kind of God to not let us get infinite and lasting satisfaction from that which is not infinite or lasting. Only he is infinite and ultimate and lasting. And in him there is satisfaction. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And when we begin to realize that, here's the kicker. We can calmly then Enjoy silly little things in life because they're not ultimate. Because we don't have to wring out of them everything we need. We can enjoy cheeseburgers. I love cheeseburgers. It's the perfect food. I could go on and on. I'm on a diet right now so I could go on and on for a good while. I love my kids. I, I like your kids, but I love my kids. God has given us such massive and temporary, small, seemingly insignificant joys. They're all from him. It's all from him. Your toil, it's from him. It's a gift. Oh, I know Monday doesn't feel like that. Well, you better start telling yourself that. There's a time to say, of course this is hard. We live under the fall. This is under the sun. No surprise, my boss is a jerk and my coworkers don't like me. There's another time to say, there's nothing better than this. I don't deserve this job. 
I don't deserve this opportunity. I don't deserve to serve these people. I don't deserve to do the second greatest commandment among these people and to those people. It's a gift. Colossians 3 tells us, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. Which, by the way, gets ahead of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Jesus. There's no mention of the Messiah in Ecclesiastes. We now know, since Jesus has come, that how we're reconciled with our God is through him. How we get to God's presence and find that full and lasting joy is only through him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He said that he came that we might have life and life abundant. The good life. How? How do we get the good life? Well, the very next verse in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. He died for our sins. He died for our guilt. He died for all those sins of looking for love in all the wrong places. He died for those sins of replacing God with God's gifts and trying to make them God's. That's some wicked stuff, isn't it? Oh, I see it in my own heart all the time, and I hate it. It's crazy to think that we take God's gifts, try to make them God's, replace God, and worship the thing instead of the creator. But Jesus died for those heinous, God-replacing sins. And he came and died to give us satisfaction. In John 4, he told the woman at the well, I can give you water in which you'll, you'll never really need to drink again. In John 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. You eat this bread, you're done. You're filled up for good. In John 7, he said, I've come as a, a fountain of living water. I'm going to put it in you, and it's going to flow through you to others. This is his plan. This is who he is. This is what he's done. If you're not a Christian, I pray you'd call on Jesus. You go in through him. You get to God through him. It begins with him. And once you come to him, it doesn't mean this life isn't hard. It doesn't mean that Christianity is easy. In some ways, it's harder. But in other ways, it is more fulfilling. It is more satisfying. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I pray you would too. I pray you'd find him today, or rather that he would find you. If you're not a Christian, hear these words from Jesus to his disciples in how he assures them and comforts them and encourages them. And, and Christian, hear these words from Matthew 6 for you. Jesus says to his disciples, I hope you're one of them. He says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentile unbelievers seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows what you need. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Let's pray. What comforting words, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your kind, gentle shepherding, and that you're strong to provide and strong to protect, strong to save, and even strong to satisfy. Lord, we thank you not just for your grace, not just for fellowship with you, but for a million gifts you give us every day. As we gather around our lunch tables this afternoon or perhaps this evening for dinner, would you put a smile on our faces as we enjoy what you have given us? Would we take it as an assignment from you? We pray we would. We pray with Moses in Psalm 90, Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. So, Lord, we pray that for our singing now. Satisfy us. Make us sing for joy and be glad all our days. Amen.